Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Janelle was not only the love of my life, she was truly my soulmate. I had been widowed previously, and Janelle came along at a time in my life when there was a, an empty place. And although I had no real intention to for anything more than friendship, it just clicked. together. We were married 25 years, but we had a marvelous life together. Janelle and I fit together like two key parts of a puzzle that click. And when she was gone, it was like someone tore a hole in my heart that just was left empty. What happened was we both caught a cold that turned into bad bronchitis. I got over mine, hers turned into pneumonia. And as part of the coughing, she had herniated her diaphragm, and it's tore a hole in the diaphragm, and part of the colon slipped up above the diaphragm and got trapped and she had to have emergency surgery. And going into the surgery, we knew that the mortality of the surgery was about 50%. She said, I've had a talk with God. God has forgiven me and I'm ready to go. And when she said that, and that still gives me tears, when she said that, I knew that she meant more than I'm ready to go to surgery. And one of the last things that I was able to tell her was, if you don't make this, I'll see you in heaven. And she recovered or was starting to make a great recovery after surgery, but it lingered on for about three weeks. Uh, she wound up with a series of infections and <clears throat> that led to resistant sepsis that one, I think it was about three different courses of antibiotics all failed until she had what's, what's known as multi-system organ failure. And we had to make the decision to let her go. And at that point, when they discontinued life support, uh, she breathed her last while I held her in my arms. Something would spark me after she was gone that would give me the chills, anxiety, and I would find that those times it, it occurred to me to sit down and start reading the Psalms. And I would sit down and read the Psalms and let, let God know how I felt. 
And with time, I then became exposed to this book on rebaptism by the Holy Spirit. And at that point, I started asking God to rebaptize me in the Holy Spirit and to give me the strength to hang on and to give me his comfort. As I look back on it now, I realized that the anxiety episodes began to subside. During a period of meditation, as I was sitting there, it suddenly occurred to me, and that's kind of odd to say suddenly during meditation, but that really that's the way it worked. I became aware of internal peace that I can only describe as internal peace. And unless you felt it, there's no way I can really describe it. And I realized that God had been answering my prayer all along. And the while I wanted to reach through the veil and touch the hem of his garment, what God really did for me was to reach through and touch my heart and give me peace. I've come to look at life differently. I realized the turmoil that we're in but I don't have to be drawn into that, that all I have to do is ask God, please give me your peace. Please send the Holy Spirit, give me the strength to hang on, and I'm able to make through it. I realize there, there are times that are harder than others, but you know the little, as I call them, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, to quote Hamlet, become much less of a problem when you've got God on your side and the Holy Spirit. If I just stop and be quiet, I will feel God's peace. February 4, 1976, the ground moved beneath their feet. We were, as a family, living in Guadalajara, Mexico at the time. My older brother John was living in Guatemala City. And it was about 5 a.m. that day, February 4, 1976, that that earthquake shook and shattered the country of Guatemala. My brother has forever had a different view of earthquakes. He said early that morning, still in bed, it suddenly sounded like a train was coming through his bedroom, and then everything broke loose, and the ground shifted beneath his feet. Those kinds of experiences change us because they touch us at the deepest levels. My good friend Dale Isaiah, whose story you just saw, had that experience, and shared it with you. I was there when it began, had the privilege of standing as best man at his wedding, and then had the sacred privilege of being at his side while he held Janelle in his arms, and she breathed her last. Those kinds of experiences change us. They cause us to question everything upon which we had based our faith. They caused us, cause us to wonder, is the ground beneath my feet really solid? Are the things in which I have believed dependable? Can I trust? What do I do 
when the foundations tremble. Today I want to take you to a passage of Scripture in John's Gospel, the 14th chapter. Now we had said last week that we would come back this week and begin our series, a series entitled Eyewitness. But we've decided to hold that. The reality is the circumstances around us are changing so rapidly that we want to stay more attuned to that. So right now our studies on Sabbath morning will be on a week-to-week basis. John, the 14th chapter, you know as you have read and studied the Gospel of John that by John 11, 12, and 13, we're already into the final days and hours of the life of Jesus. And in John 14, we come to that period of time when Jesus shares very openly from his heart with his friends about what is about to happen and all of its implications. In fact, I want to read you a few words from the book Desire of Ages before I read from the passage just to set the stage, to paint the background, to know the scenario. Here's what it says. Looking upon his disciples with divine love and with the tenderest sympathy, Christ said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Jesus had left the upper chamber, and Christ was alone. Judas had left, pardon me, forgiveness, the upper chamber, and Christ was alone with the eleven. He was about to speak of his approaching separation from them, but before doing this, he pointed to the great object of his mission. It was this that he ever kept before him. It was his joy that all his humiliation and suffering would glorify the Father's name. To this he directs the thoughts of his disciples. And that's what's happening in John 14. Addressing them by the endearing term, little children, he said, Yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, but whether I go, you cannot come now. The disciples could not rejoice when they heard this. Fear fell upon them. They pressed close about the Savior, their Master and Lord, their beloved teacher and friend. He was dearer to them than life. To Him they had looked for help in all their difficulties, for comfort in their sorrows and disappointments. Now He was to leave them a lonely, dependent company. Dark were the forebodings that filled their hearts. So if we're to enter into the experience, the feelings, the emotions of what we read in this passage, we have to remember that it was a dark time for the disciples. It was as though huddled together in that upper room, they could say, something evil this way comes. They could read it in the somber, solemn exterior of their master. The heavy load they sensed that he carried. They must have sensed that storm clouds had gathered and were roiling in the sky above them. They could feel, no doubt, the temperature of the city around them. They could see the glowering faces of the religious leaders. They could see the ease with which the Roman soldiers grabbed at their spears and their swords to keep the Roman peace, the Pax Romana. And they knew all was not well. It was that kind of experience where the ground shifts beneath your feet. 
when that on which you had depended suddenly seems called into question. Now, what do you do? This passage in John 14 is one of the most precious passages to which Christ's followers turn in times of difficulty. It strikes me as I read this section of John that that Jesus is answering questions. We don't have the record of all the questions the disciples ask. In fact, if you look at the passage, you can see that in a red-letter edition Bible, it's almost all red because Jesus does almost all of the talking. But make no mistake about it. He's answering questions that they're asking. I think there are several questions they ask in this passage. The first of which is this one. Jesus, what do we do with our fear? What do we do with our fear when the ground shifts beneath us? When storm clouds hover over us, what do we do with our fear? And thus begins the passage, John 14, 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Jesus, what do we do with our fear? And the answer Jesus gives is very simple. He says, you trust. You trust. Now, you understand that that moves against everything within us. When we feel fear, our most normal response, our most natural reaction is to get control of the situation, to grab onto what we can grab onto, to make things happen the way we think they should happen, to get control. Trust. Trust requires that we relinquish control, that we let it go. I have many memories of my father's prayers in my growing up years. Many times after my mother had quoted this very passage. My father would pray, and at the end of his prayer, he would time and again through my life use this line. We place our lives in your hands. We place our lives in your hands. Trust. I grew up principally in two places, in Texas and in the tropics. Neither in Texas nor in the tropics do they snow ski. Snow skiing is not a part of the regiment. And yet when we moved here to California, when we became a part of this congregation, we had friends that invited us to go to Mammoth. Come on, you can learn to ski there. You can take lessons there. And so we finally gave in and we went. And I learned the joys of being out in the white, pristine beauty of crystal clear skies and snow. I also learned that 
when you're first learning to ski, they said, make a, a, a pizza, they called it, because I was in the class with all the kids. Make a pizza of your skis. Bring them together at the front, and that will slow you down. I can remember coming down those slopes saying, pizza, 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 trying to hold on, trying not to get it, let it get away from me and go too fast. But I did okay. After a number of times of skiing, I decided I'm ready. I'm ready to go onto the bigger mountain. And so I got on the ski lift, and up the side of the mountain I went, arrived up at the top, and miraculously managed to get off the ski chair without causing a commotion, and got out near the top of this mountain I was going to ski down. I looked down that mountain, and I thought, what am I going to, there is no way I'm going down that mountain. There is no way, that will be disastrous. But I was soon to learn something I hadn't yet realized, and that was once you went up, that was the only way down. And so I did something that must have profoundly irritated every other ski boarder and every other skier on that mountain. I went from one side to the other in these long, slow sweeps across the mountain, barely making any progress down the mountain, and then would manage to get turned around the other direction, and off I would go again on another long, slow swipe across the side of the mountain. It was while I was doing this that I heard a voice, a loud voice, up the mountain behind me. And the loud voice was simply saying, left, right, left, right. And I thought, what in the world? I was too scared and too unsteady to be able to turn around and see what was happening. And I just kept hearing the voice. I finally got to one side and slowly managed to turn around and look. And it was then that I saw three skiers in single file, all wearing orange jumpsuits, and each with a sign on their chest and on their back. And the sign said, Blind Skier. It was then that I realized that the skier in the middle was blind. The one in the front and the one in behind were skiing in order to accompany this blind skier down the mountain. And it was the one in the back who was calling out the instructions, left, right, left, right, as they made their way in sweeping fashion down the mountain. They swept past me and all the way to the bottom. And I stood there, I'm certain, jaw agape. A skier who could not see had just swept past me. Trust. That's what Jesus says here in John 14 to disciples who are uncertain, who are fearful, for whom the ground is shifting beneath their feet. They ask Jesus, what should we do with our fear? And he says, trust. But there's a second question that I believe the disciples are asking, which Jesus answers in this passage. Not only what do we do with our fear, but secondly, Jesus do you even have a plan? Do you have a plan? 
Do you have worked out in your mind what you're going to do to face what's coming at you? Do you have a plan? John 14, 2. My Father's house has plenty of room. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? Jesus responds to their query by saying, oh, I have a plan. It's a plan that I will go to my Father's house, and I will be busy at work there, Because my plan ultimately is going to include you. And it's a plan that is wide open and has room for everyone who wishes to, to be a part of it. Yes, I have a plan. I can remember in my growing up years, teenage years really, in Mexico, when my dad was not only a local church pastor, but also working as a mission pilot. He flew out to the Huicholas, the a large reservation of indigenous peoples who had been forgotten by time. It was rough flying. It was mountain bush flying. You always had to have a plan in your back pocket. In fact, I can remember distinctly my father telling me, when you get into trouble, when you're flying, you'd better have your name written down in your pocket because if not, you'll likely forget it. The panic can get that high. I remember times when he had to make do. The time when he was on a mountain airstrip, when the front tire had blown out and he didn't know how he was going to take off and finally decided he would get one of the peoples, the local peoples who lived there, to sit on the tail of the plane. They would hold it down. He said, now I'm going to give it full throttle. And when I wave at you out the window, you jump off. And they did. And down the down that Dirt runway he went, trying to hold the nose up enough to get in the air, which he finally did. You had to have a plan because things would go wrong. I suppose it's because of that that I remember clearly the time I was flying with Dad. We had been in Texas. We were flying back to Guadalajara, Mexico, And we flew into some significant storm activity. I remember seeing it on one side of the plane, building the thunderheads, the lightning, the rain, and then beginning to build on the other side of the plane. And I can remember my heart beginning to pitter-patter, wondering how are we going to get out of this. But the thing that I probably remember the best was that as often as I looked at the horizon to figure out what we had coming at us, I even more frequently just turned and kept looking at my father's face, just looking at his face. I was trying to read his face. I knew dad very well. I'd been his son for 15, 16 years. And I was trying to read in his face, is there fear there? Is there assurance there? Is there confidence there? Is there uncertainty there? I wouldn't have been able to put it into these words right at that moment, but looking back now, I realize what I was asking was, Dad, do you have a plan? Is there some direction you're moving? Is there some way you're going to act? Is there something you're going to do? 
I think that's precisely what the disciples that night were experiencing. I've gone back time and again to just a brief two or three statements made by Dr. Fred Craddock in a sermon that didn't have to do with John 14, but was just offered as an aside. I've shared it many times at funerals because I think Craddock was right on target. What he said was in this section of Scripture, John 14 first, but even the chapters following, the disciples were like children playing when they suddenly realized mom and dad are going out for the evening, getting coats and keys and purse and wallet. The world over, kids ask three questions. Where are you going? Can we come? Then who's going to stay with us? Underneath, they're asking, what's the plan? And Jesus answers them. I'm going to the Father's house. You can't come now. But I will send the Comforter to be with you forever. Translated, Jesus is saying, I have a plan. Jesus, what do we do with our fear? You trust. Do you have a plan? I do. Third question. Does that plan include us? Will you remember us? You won't forget us, will you? It's the same plea presented as a question asked by people in love the world over as they say goodbye at airports and railway stations beside cars about to leave on a journey. You won't forget me, will you? I'm a part of your future, aren't I? You have a plan that involves us, don't you? And I think that's what the disciples were asking. So John 14, 3, Jesus answers. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Summarized, Jesus says, my plan includes you. I will not forget you. There's an author, an author by the name of Keith W. Jennison, who tells a story about Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln and a young friend named Billy, Billy Brown. Billy Brown was from back in Springfield, Illinois, where Lincoln, from where Lincoln hailed. It was in the darkest time, the darkest days of the Civil War, that Billy Brown said, I'm going to see Abraham Lincoln, going to visit him. His friend said, he's the president now. You have no guarantee that you'll be able to see him. Oh, he'll see me. I'm his friend. So Billy being struck out from Illinois, finally landing in Washington, D.C., knocking on the door of the White House. Can you imagine that today? 
and telling the one who answered, it's Billy Brown, I'm here to see President Lincoln. Do you have an appointment? I don't need an appointment. I'm a friend. You don't have an appointment? No, sir, I don't. But just tell him Billy Brown's here from back home. Well, Lincoln recognized the name, and Billy was ushered into the White House. I want you to listen to how Keith W. Jennison describes how Billy later told the story. Billy said, we talked and talked. He asked me about Pritt and I, everybody in Springfield. I just let loose, told him about the weddings and the births and the funerals and the buildings. I guess there wasn't a yarn I'd heard in the three and a half years he'd been away that I didn't spend for him. Laugh? <laughs> you ought to heard him laugh. Just did my heart good, because I could see what they'd been doing to him. Always was a thin man, but Lordy, he was thinner than ever now, and his face was kind of drawn and gray, enough to make you want to cry. Jennison writes, later that evening, Billy said goodbye. The president tried to get him to stay the night, but Billy, not wanting to impose, declined. As they parted, Lincoln said, Billy, now tell me. What did you come down here for? I came to see you, Mr. Lincoln. But you haven't asked me for anything, Billy. What is it? Out with it. No, Mr. Lincoln. I just wanted to see you. Felt kind of lonesome. Been so long since I'd seen you, and I was afraid I'd forget some of them yarns if I didn't unload them soon. Lincoln gazed into his friend's eyes. Do you mean to tell me that you came all the way from Springfield, Illinois, just to visit with me? That you have no complaints in your pockets, no advice up your sleeve? Yes, sir. That's about it. Tears came into Lincoln's eyes and ran down his cheeks. I'm homesick, Billy. Just plumb homesick. It seems as if this war will never be over. Many a night I can see the boys dying in the fields and can hear their mothers crying for them at home, and, and I can't help it, Billy. Billy, you'll never know just what good you've done for me. I just came to see you. Mr. President, no advice, no complaints. I just missed you. That's the ethos of this passage. If the disciples are asking, is there room for us in your plan? You won't forget us, will you? Jesus says, how could I? There's abundant room for you in my plan. And you are central to it. And I will come and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. If indeed those are the questions the disciples are asking, 
I think they aren't the only ones to have asked them. I think some are asking them today. The ground is shifting. I'll be honest with you folks. I've in my lifetime never seen something like this. And we're grasping for ways to to feel confident, to feel in control. It's as though we can picture Jesus that night with his disciples, and they're asking him, what do we do? And Jesus says to them, I want you to go out, and I want you to buy up every bit of toilet paper you can find. Buy it. (laughs) That's what we seem to think, many of us. The ground is shifting, moving. What do we do with our fear? God, do you have a plan? And are we part of that plan? Do we matter? Well, to the disciples, that fateful night so long ago, Jesus responded. What do you do with your fear? You trust. Do I have a plan? I do. Are you included in that plan? You are. So I think there's only one question left for us, for them. How do we get that plan? How do we become part of it? How do we access that which God has for us? Well, they asked that question. John 14, starting in verse 4. Jesus says, you know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way. When it comes to the bottom line, Jesus is the plan. And when we have Jesus, we're included in and we are a part of the plan that God extends to us. He says, I am the way. It reminds me of a story. A story told by a pastor named Ron Mel. Pastor Mel had a member of his congregation, a woman who was well advanced in years, who was beginning to decline and to suffer. She was much beloved by her family, even by her congregation. So people hurt when they saw her decline become more real. She was a woman who who loved Scripture and had spent much time in the Word and had committed many different passages to memory. When the time came when she was admitted to a facility, an extended care facility, where she could receive care, and when her family and friends would visit, she would often quote Scripture to them. There was one passage from the writings of Paul to Timothy, which she found particularly meaningful. I know in whom I have believed. And am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him until that day. 
And she would often quote that passage. But people could tell that a fog was settling down over her mind. Because when they would come back a few days later, a week later, two weeks later, she couldn't remember all the passage anymore. I know whom I have believed and persuaded. Keep me, him, until that day. And as they would visit, those pieces became more ragged and more brief. Pastor Mel says that at the end of her life, when they had to lean in and listen carefully to capture what she was saying, she could only remember one word. But it was a word that she quoted over and over again. The word from that passage was him. 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 At the end, it was all she had left. But at the end, it was all she needed. Amen.